together and read this chapter, please. John 4, I'm going to begin at verse 1. John 4, starting at verse number 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So... I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that What you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. And now is. When the true worshipers. Will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him. Must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes. He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. I've been listening to my iPod lately. 
lot lately. I've been feeling tired. I told the elders, I said, I don't know, guys, whether I need a kick in the pants or a vacation. <laughs> but I'm tired. And so I decided, I'm not taking a vacation yet. But I am going to try and do some things that are going to energize me. So I've been listening to lectures, listening to sermons, reading more, and uh, listening to a variety of things. And you know how God can use special revelation. He can use common revelation, common general revelation as well. I was listening to this one guy. His name is Guy Kawasaki. Those of you who are interested in business might even know some of his books. He was teaching at Stanford University. And Stanford University out in California has a program where they invite various entrepreneurs to come and lecture to students who are interested in one day possibly owning their own business. And Guy Kawasaki has written many books uh, that are in the business world. He was known as one of the early evangelists, and that's what they call themselves, early evangelists for Apple. And one of the things that Guy Kawasaki said, among others, he said, I believe in the existence of God. He says this is not necessarily rising to the level of a C.S. Lewis argument, but he said there's no explanation for the existence of Apple except God because of all the bad decisions they made in the early days, he said. And one of the other things that he said that stood out to me as he was talking to these students, in addition to that, he he said, you know, it is sometimes good for corporations and maybe even for churches, he didn't say churches, but that was my application, to do what he called a pre-mortem. A pre-mortem. He said, you know, often when corporations or entrepreneurs fail, they go through the post-mortem stage. They look at what happened. How did we fail? Why did the company close? And why did they go out of business? And they begin to examine themselves and the corporation. And sometimes he said it can get ugly. The software guys are saying, you know, we had a really good program if you guys knew how to market it right. The marketing guys are saying, well, if you had taken care of those glitches early on, we made our job easier getting that product out there. It was so, you know, your 1.0 was so sorry. And he said the problem, though, with post-mortem is it's post-mortem, after the fact, after death. He said what companies need to do is a pre-mortem. And he said imagine that you are going to fail. Imagine that you are going to die. Imagine, imagine that the church does close in the providence of God. What? would be, humanly speaking, instrumentally, what would be the reasons for those closings? I thought about that. That was, was not a bad exercise, really. And I think that's in one sense what the elders were trying to do back in March when we were meeting together and we, we got to the subject of uh, evangelism and we asked ourselves, how are we doing? And one of the elders, I told you in the April 3rd sermon, he said, it's not our strong suit. And so we preached a message on evangelism and outreach. And we got a good response. A number of you came back to us and said, you know, that was, that was good. That was helpful. Can you give us more? And I said, well, no, I'm not ready to give you any more. And 
And, but we finished 2 Corinthians, and now here we are ready to take a break. I'm ready to take a break uh, after all that expositional preaching. And yes, I'm ready to come back and revisit some of this subject with you and to see if maybe we can do a little pre-mortem. Now, I pray, God, that he would not close us, kill us, put us out of business. It is up to God, ultimately, isn't it? I mean, it is his church. He's the head. But we want to be faithful insofar as... God gives us the ability to be faithful to him. And I'm not saying that all church closings are a result of a lack of faithfulness. I don't want you to hear me to necessarily say that. There can be lots of reasons providentially under God for the closing of doors of churches. Sometimes it's because it's God has greater things for that church to do. I've known churches that it was a season for building them up in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then he wanted to, he wanted to distribute them and, and, and move them out, pour it out more like salt out there and strengthen a lot of other churches that needed strengthening. So I'm not suggesting that. But I do say, let's, let's see if we can work on this. I think the elders were in agreement this was not our strong suit and we, we want to be stronger in that. We want to work on that. We want to be committed to our strengths, but also we, we want to look at our outreach, our evangelism, our inviting people. So if I can just quickly review just a few thoughts that we had when we discussed this back in April, we, we said that there are sometimes reasons why evangelism and outreach might not be our strong suit. This is all just review. Number one, we said it might be a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty, that we have a misunderstanding of what we today call Calvinism, it's simply Augustinianism, which was Pauline theology, which Paul got from Jesus, simply that God is sovereign even over men. God is sovereign and that because we're dead in our sins and trespasses, no man can come unto the Father except Christ call him, except Christ effectually stir him up. But I said we, we need to be careful while we emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation. Uh, we, we also need to be aware of what is sometimes called hyper-Calvinism. Where we get this attitude, well, God is sovereign. And therefore we begin to deny our human responsibility under that sovereignty. And so Calvinism becomes a pillow of laziness rather than an encouragement to go out. You see, the sovereignty of God should encourage you to talk to people about Christ. The sovereignty, because it, it, how, how freeing is it to know God's in control, God is sovereign. All I have to do is just as weak as I am, as much as a clay pot as I am, is just be myself in Jesus Christ and talk to people in a winsome and natural way and, and share with them the love of Jesus Christ. Somebody was asking me, you know, how do I do that? And, you know, in many ways, I think the answer is that all of us have to find our own way in the Lord in that question. I mean, you are not me and I'm not you and we've got different personalities We've got different approaches. We have different friends. And, and you are just going to have to prayerfully seek the Lord for wisdom in the various relationships that you have. Some of you are direct and can get away with it. Others of you are, 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 are uh, more subtle and you, you build up that friendship, friendship evangelism. Uh, they're, they're, I don't want to give you a formula here and say, this is the way you've got to do it. Uh, I think that would, that would not be scriptural. I think we could look at the Bible and see all kinds of examples. But let's just beware of a tendency to 
think that the sovereignty of God limits our responsibility to our neighbor. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, that is the second greatest commandment in the Bible. And if you love your soul, what that says to me is that I must love my neighbor's soul. If I love my eternity, my future eternity, I need to be concerned about the eternity of my neighbors around me. If I'm concerned about my children, I need to love my neighbor's children too. I do have an obligation to my brother. I am my brother's keeper. Who is my neighbor? Somebody asked Jesus. And they answered quite after the Samaritan parable. Simply, everybody's your neighbor. You're the neighbor. You're the neighbor. Everybody around you is, is the neighbor. So we need to be aware of that. You know, you, you sometimes see extremes of this. I, I told you the example of a woman that I once talked to from a primitive Baptist background who told me I didn't need to go to Uganda, you know, because God will save them over there. You don't need to go. And, and, and you know, I tried to gently explain, well, the God who ordains the end in salvation, yes, it is God who does elect people from the beginning of time. But how does God carry out that election? How does he accomplish it? He accomplishes it, Paul says, through means. How shall they hear except that a preacher be sent? Blessed are the feet of them that bring good news. Now, secondly, uh, another problem can be pride. We need to be aware of pride. Uh, we should not look down on people and think that, you know, they, that these people deserve to go to hell. Uh, the, the Pharisees were guilty of that. I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like these other people. You know, I tithe, I fast twice a week. Uh, I'm certainly thankful I'm not like that publican back there. And the Bible says he prayed unto himself and went home. Jesus said, unjustified. And it was the publican who cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that went home justified. Pride, an enemy of outreach and evangelism. Thirdly, it could be a backslidden spiritual condition within ourselves. could be truly Christians but that we are not doing well spiritually and we've become more self-centered, more family-centered. We have become less uh, concerned about other people. Uh, Maybe you have mercy fatigue, compassion fatigue, something like that. Uh, You've become disinterested in other people. It's it's not necessarily a a hostility like racism, but it's more of a, a passive disinterest in other people. You become preoccupied with your own Interests to the neglect of other things that maybe Jesus would have us put on our plate. Uh, you know, I told you about those denominations. They gave a, a survey, did done, uh, took various denominations and averaged out how often uh, members of that particular denomination invited other people to church. And there was one particular denomination that it was once every twenty some years. And uh, that, that, of course, is a denomination that's quickly going downhill. And you can obviously see why it's soon going to be out of existence. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, when was the last time I really took an interest in somebody else and invited them? You know, I, kids, I once had this thought. I'm not going to say I'm going to do this, but I once had this thought. You know, we do, after Sunday night worship, we invite the kids over to come over and eat and sing and pray. And I thought, boy, I wonder, well, I wonder what would happen if, if I said to the kids, the high school students, the, uh, the college students, I said, hey, listen, we're going to meet at my house uh, and do the usual, have dinner and everything, but uh, here's the condition. You've got to bring somebody. Ticket of admission, you've got to bring somebody who needs Christ. You've got to bring somebody 
who doesn't have a church home. I wonder what what would happen. Would anybody show up? Now, guys, I'm not saying that's what we're going to do, but I just was using my imagination. What if? What if? What if we said, ticket of admission? You want dinner at my house? I know a meal's not that great. That's not a great incentive. (laughs) But but what are we doing? Are, are, Are we just doing youth group for ourselves, guys? Is that it? Is that the end? Are, are we doing all our ministry just for us? Do we have, is any of our ministry also casing, casting a glance at, at the fields that are white under harvest as well? Now, I am not saying that all of the ministry is for the white harvest out there. I mean, we are called, Jesus said in the Great Commission, to disciple and to baptize. And obviously, to build up the people of God. But also, but we do have to ask ourselves, can you get to the point of ministering to yourself where the church is ingrown? And that the, and that the church is no longer looking out. And that we're just feeding ourselves. And, and we're content with that. So, I don't know. You, young people, you can get back to me what you think about that idea. I thought about it myself. I said, what if we did church that way? One Sunday. You can't come. Unless you bring somebody who has no church home. Man, I, I tell you, I, I thought about that. I mean, I was trying to think, what would I do? I'd start on Monday. That's what I would do. <laughs> and man, would I be embarrassed if you guys had people here and I didn't. If I couldn't get anybody to get here. But I thought about it. What if, what if we did church one Sunday morning that way? I mean, again, I'm not saying let's do this. But, uh, but it made me think, you know, gosh, if I can't get anybody Monday, Tuesday, time's Wednesday, time's running out. You begin to feel the sense of urgency, don't you? Go to the byways. Remember when the king said, go and invite the people and bring them in. I got this banquet for them and, and the spread is ready and, and I need you just to go out there and and bring them in, and they said, well, we went out there, and yet there's still more room in the banquet hall. And he said, what did he do? He sent them back out. He said, go in the byways. Compel them, compel them to come. I have to admit, I think if I'm honest, I invite people now and then to church. I don't think I come close to compelling them. I almost... Put it out there like it'd be a favor to me if they would come. Please, you know, just to ease my conscience a little bit that I'm okay, I'm doing this a little bit out here. I can't say, I don't know that I can say I've ever compelled them. You know, and I've got family who need to be compelled. And I have to admit, there's Sundays I say, Mom, Dad, you want to go? No, okay. And I just leave it at okay. And that leads to the other possible reason, because I witnessed by my life excuse, as Bodie Bachman called it. Now, we should witness with our life. Make no mistake about it. As I said in Sunday school, uh, one of my professors said, don't necessarily tell them you're a pastor at first, but when they find out, don't let them be surprised. Your life should reflect the gospel. But that is not to say that, therefore, because my life is consistent with the gospel, that I have done my job. 
Because the Bible also says faith cometh by hearing, and that by the word. And, and therefore we need to speak the gospel. The book of Acts says that when the persecution broke out in chapter 8 and chapter 9, when they put Stephen to death, that they went out gossiping the gospel. They went out talking about the gospel. And I think one of the reasons Piper has suggested is because maybe God said, okay, you know, you're enjoying church and I'm doing great things in your midst there in Jerusalem, but remember, I told you, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other ends of the earth, and I'm not seeing Jerusalem, I'm not seeing Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth, so what am I going to do? I'm going to raise up this persecution and you're going to scatter, you're going to have to go now. Because you weren't going before, I'm going to raise up this persecution and now you're going to have to go. That's Piper's theory on that. He might be right. And uh, I would rather willingly go than have to suffer and be forced to go. We need to beware the fear of man, uh, the desire to be respected or liked by certain people or groups, businessmen maybe. Uh, Maybe we feel like we'll be thought as less than intelligent uh, if we believe the Bible. And then we said uh, we need to beware of a lack of faith in the Spirit and His work. Jesus could do few miracles, we're told, in some communities because of their lack of faith. And I don't fully understand that, I confess, but that is what the text seems to say. There was some connection between the faith or the, uh, the hardness of their hearts and Jesus' ability to perform miracles among them. All right. Let's talk about the woman at the well then. All right? The woman at the well. Here Jesus is in John chapter 4 and uh, Pharisees are after him. So he decides to step away for a while, get away from Jerusalem, come to the country and goes up to Galilee and goes even further up into Samaria. Now Samaria, boys and girls, is that region. It was northern Israel, central northern Israel. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and they attacked that region, attacked the ten tribes of Israel and they carried a bunch of them away, thousands of them away. And in order to pacify and reconstruct that region, they also then took people from other parts of the Assyrian Empire and put them into that same geographic location in Israel. So they took a lot of the Jews out and they put a lot of the Gentiles in, and they mixed it all up. Easy, you can understand. Easier to keep those people subdued, less resistance once you've conquered them, etc., and uh, don't have any problems with them later. So, uh, long story short, for the next several hundred years, uh, you have uh, this merging of the true religion of God. You still had some of God's people there, but also a lot of idolatry and syncretism creeping in among them. And the Jews in the south of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, uh, relationships with uh, these two tribes began to deteriorate. And so they looked at the Samaritans with suspicion. Compromisers, uh, maybe even 
uh, ethnically, uh, people who had mixed with other nationalities, etc. So that, that is the background to this situation so that when Jesus shows up here in Samaria and he comes to uh, Jacob's well there, uh, it says in verse 7, the woman, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, what I want to do from verse 7 down to 26, I'm going to take you through what I think are at least four phases of this woman's thinking about Jesus. And I want to help you understand how did Jesus interact with this woman who was not a believer yet, but came to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and the various phases of her thinking that did develop. Now the first one is from verses 6 to 9, and I'm calling that Jesus a remarkable Hebrew. That was her first impression. Jesus a remarkable Hebrew. Number two is verses 10 to 12. Jesus greater than the patriarchs, question mark. Moving from just a remarkable Hebrew, but maybe a little bit more now, to could he be greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Number three, verses 13 and 19, Jesus the prophet. She becomes aware of his gift of prophecy. And then finally, verses 20 to 26, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. All right? Those are going to be my four thoughts here. Now, look at verse 6. Uh, I'll start at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now that surprised her for... His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's the first thing that stands out in this woman's mind is this is an unusual Hebrew. This guy is a little different because he is engaging me. And he's talking to me. And he's even asking me to give him some water. Almost in the sense he's asking to, to fellowship with me, to eat with me. We're not necessarily eating here, but the idea of sharing a drink. That's really strange, she's thinking. And, and it's interesting to see how Jesus so wondrously interacts with different people. I mean, in the previous chapter, we had him dealing with who? Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus and this woman couldn't be farther apart culturally. Nicodemus was a man. Samaritan woman was a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. This woman is a Gentile or half Gentile. Samaritan, somebody of maybe of a ethnicity that was not liked. Uh, Nicodemus was of high standing. She, this woman, you don't get the sense that this woman is high in the community in any sense. And I'll give you more about that later. So this is really causing her to think. And I think it speaks to us today. And Do people, when they first meet us, do they recognize something different about us? 
And let me suggest to you that there are opportunities for you to do that. The, the animosities might not be as intense, but listen, friends, we certainly have a history in this region, don't we, of various ethnic animosities. And there are all kinds of opportunities to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ across borders, if you will, across socioeconomic lines, across racial lines that will cause people to say, that's a remarkable white man. Or that's a remarkable middle, upper middle class man. The way he or she engages me, the way she talks to me, the way she respects and honors me. And so I think there's, there are lessons here for us. There's opportunities for us to stand out in our culture too. Why is this, why is this white guy talking to me? Why is he taking an interest in me? Why is he taking an interest in my family? Why are they inviting us to their house to eat with them? Now, the thing is, we often don't take advantage of some of those opportunities that we have. Maybe we should for the sake of the gospel. But can you imagine the surprise that might come to some in this community if we simply invited them over for dinner? They'd say, there's something strange about that family. There's something remarkable about them. Not exactly certain what it is, but they've got my interest. They've got my interest. Okay, a remarkable Hebrew, loving outreach to a stranger. Simple, loving outreach, surprisingly, to a stranger. Took advantage of a known animosity between two cultures and said, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to show you that I'm going to bridge that and I'm going to love you. All right, number two, Jesus greater than the patriarchs, question mark. Jesus greater than the patriarchs? Our second phase of our thinking, verses 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12. Oh, man. I'm running out of time. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, notice, just notice here that Jesus begins a theological conversation with her. Okay? He has made some kind of impression on this woman by his love for her. And now he's using that to his advantage. He's shrewd. Jesus is shrewd yet innocent. And he, he has impressed this woman to, to a sense. But now he's using that to talk about something important. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course he's speaking figuratively. He's using the language of water, boys and girls. She doesn't get that yet. But he's going to help her to get it. But he doesn't get it yet. Notice that even as far down as verse 15, she still doesn't get it. She's still this literalist. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She's still thinking literal water here. He's talking to her about the Spirit, but he's being patient with her. But he is communicating 
something of spiritual nature to her that she needs. She knows she needs some kind of living water. She doesn't still really understand what that living water is. She still thinks somehow if Jesus gives her this living water, she won't need literal water anymore from Jacob's well. But this is what it does cause her to think. She begins to wonder, this guy is speaking truth with authority, and is he greater than the patriarchs? She misunderstands the living water. Nicodemus was another literalist, by the way. You know, Jesus was conveying the truth to him in a figurative expression. And what did he say? Do I have to go back in my mother's womb and be born again? He, he, same problem. Same problem. You know, very literalist understanding. Didn't understand what he was really talking about. Shows you the truth can be figurative. Anyway, uh, she asked Jesus, Jesus this question, and she's anticipating a negative response. He's not greater than Jacob, is he? Jacob, I mean, after all, Jacob gave us the well. Jacob is a tremendous historical figure, both to the Jews and to the Samaritans. I mean, Jacob is, is a patriarch. Jacob is, is, a, is somebody that's high. But this guy, hmm. Third phase of her thinking, verses 13 to 19, Jesus the prophet. And now here's where Jesus really, I think, goes to the conscience. He's given her a little theological truth, but now he's going to show her her need. You know, the problem with a lot of people is they don't have a sense of their need. And because they don't have a sense of their need, they, the remedy that we offer them, they're not willing to accept. So Jesus gave her this theological truth about the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But she doesn't see her need yet. She's still thinking, the only thing I got and need right now is this water over here in Jacob's well that I'm having to come by myself to, to get the water from. So what, is, what does he do? I think he goes after the conscience. Look at verse 13. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, move on. Verse 16, sorry. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, that is an ouch right there to this woman. She just said ouch when he said that. Because right away he has exposed a, an area of her life that has been dysfunctional for years. Because she doesn't have a husband. And it's not just that she doesn't have a husband. Because she's living with a guy. And prior to that relationship, she had had five other relationships with five other guys. I remember one time, one of the elders and I uh, agreed to help a woman who had come for some counseling help and, and uh, not a member of the church. And we, and we began the counseling session, the three of us together. And as we began to explore her story, she said that she had been married, I think it was seven times. And you know, in seminary, they tell you when you, you know, in counseling, you try and keep a poker face, you know. You, you don't dare say, you did what? You know. But it was almost reflexive within me when she said that. I said, wow. It just came out. I mean, just, I didn't mean to. I just said, wow. Especially as one who's never taken a single marital vow in his life. I mean, you did it seven times? But, uh, you know, but as I thought about it, I said, this is, this is a woman at the well in the flesh. This is, this is a woman at the well in the flesh. This is, 
This woman had lived a dysfunctional life. And, and, it, and she had went through one dysfunctional marriage after another, after another, after another. And Jesus is convicting her of this sin. Where God says in Malachi, I hate divorce. And so now she's convicted of, of her sin. And by just simply saying, go call your husband. She confesses in verse 17, she has no husband so Jesus demonstrates his prophetic abilities. 17b in verse 18, you have correctly said I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So Jesus as prophet says that to her and she gets it. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are you are a prophet. So now, yes, check. Greater than Jacob, check, yes. Okay. Remarkable Hebrew, check. Greater than the patriarchs, check. Prophet, check. You see how Jesus is taking her through the steps, if you will, to come to an understanding of who she is, who he is. So the Samaritan woman is getting warmer, boys and girls. But she's not there. She's close to the kingdom, but she's not in the kingdom yet. So verse 20 to 26, Jesus the Christ. And she takes up the theological conversation now. Now, some commentators have speculated that she takes it up because she's trying to get out from that ouch. Jesus just touched a sore spot in her life and she reacts, ouch. Let me, let me step back away from that and redirect the conversation. Let's talk theology. Let's talk worship. And you guys say you worship down in Jerusalem. We say we worship up at this mountain. And so what happens? Jesus explains to her that it's neither on that mountain or this mountain. Well, first of all, he says, well, first of all, the Jews have it right. God had revealed himself to the Jews. They, they are worshiping him properly uh, in Jerusalem. But there is coming a time, and now is, when it won't matter geographically where you worship him. Because God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. And listen to that, congregation. That should thrill your soul when you think about outreach and evangelism. God is looking for people to worship him and even people as dysfunctional as this woman at the well. He likes to pick people who are dysfunctional and turn them into worshipers. Notice who it is. Who's the seeker in this passage? We often talk about seekers. It's not the, it's not the crowd out there that are the seekers. The seeker is God. It is God who is looking for worshipers. It is the Father who is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And our job is to go out and talk to dysfunctional people like ourselves. Right? Every family, every household has problems here, including mine. And we go and we talk to other dysfunctional people about Jesus. Now their dysfunction may be different than yours. Their children's dysfunctions may be different than your children's dysfunction. Okay? But we all have sin. We all have problems. And yet the grace of the gospel, the good news is, is that God loves to choose the foolish of the world and confound the wisdom of the world by choosing these sinners, converting them, forgiving them of their sins, 
and giving them the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to live now for Jesus Christ and to begin imperfectly but yet purposefully to bear fruit for Jesus. But the exciting thing, one of the exciting things about this is God is looking for worshipers. And as we think about the Great Commission, as we think about outreach, as we think about evangelism, hey, maybe God will use me to get a new worshiper for God. God's looking for worshipers. And God may use you to go get another worshiper or several worshipers. Sometimes God is pleased to work through an entire family all at once. Well, let me bring it to the close here. I got, I'm really running over, sorry. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So here she comes, verse 25. She's almost there. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. I got enough religion to know something about Messiah. And I know something enough to know about Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so he closes with the gospel. Jesus is the Christ. What you need is Jesus Christ. What the world needs is Jesus Christ. What our neighbors need is Jesus Christ. And he alone, there's no other name under heaven, which has been given unto men that they might be saved. If you're here this morning and you're dysfunctional, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the eternal son of God. He came into this world as a man, lived a righteous life, a perfect holy life, and surrendered it on the cross for dysfunctional people, that our dysfunctions could be forgiven. He would give us the righteousness that was his inherently, but he would transfer it to your account free. If you but would repent of your sins, turn away from them, and follow after him. Let's pray. Father,